Hello, ladies. I am praising God today for each one of you. Thank you so much for being here. It's so good to see all of you here today. I'm Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And it is my joy to be with all of you as we study God's Word together. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, And we've made it. We've made it through to the end of Numbers all the way through. And thanks for hanging in there through this whole study because it hasn't always been easy. Numbers is a complex book. It's complicated with all the laws and the instructions and the stories of unfaithfulness and disbelief and severe consequences. But if you noticed, it's also a book filled with God's persistent faithfulness, even in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness. In Numbers, we see God's holiness over and over again. We see the graciousness of God. As Amy taught a few weeks ago, it's God's grace paving the way of the Israelites' journey. God is the promise keeper. He's taking them to the land that he has promised them. And the Israelites' grumbling and rebellion and lack of faith delayed their arrival to the promised land. But it did not thwart the plan and the purpose and the promise of God. And that gives us hope today. Not only does Numbers teach us about God, but um, we learn a great deal about ourselves in Numbers. What have you learned about yourself? I know that I have been reminded that I am a sinner in need of grace. It's my tendency to grumble and complain, but I've learned that that just erodes and weakens my faith. And faith is so important. I've seen that in Numbers. Faith, which is believing God, is of the utmost importance. And God, he's holy, but he wants to journey with me personally. And he wants to journey with each one of you as well. So I don't want to soon forget how I've met with God in these words in Numbers. But we're not finished yet. We have a few more chapters that we're going to talk about this morning. And for me, these chapters are God's final instructions for the Israelites before entering the promised land. His final instructions to this new generation. They are almost home, camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan River across from Jericho. And so God has a few more instructions, and we're going to see that phrase, the Lord said to Moses, or the Lord commanded, uh, many times this morning. And the reason is because um, this is God talking. And we've already seen that phrase many times. Because in the book of Numbers, that phrase, the Lord commanded, is said over 150 times. That's why we see God is everywhere in the book of Numbers. And so God has a few important final instructions for the Israelites. And I get these instructions. I get it. Because when my daughter Rachel was a senior in high school, she was going to go off to college, I was sort of obsessed with trying to think of everything that I may have forgotten to tell her or reminder of all the things that we had taught her in the 18 years she'd been in our home. And so every day it was something. You know, Rach, when you get to college, don't forget to find a church. A home, um, a church home is very important when you get to college. And the next Rach, when you get to college, go to class every day. Don't skip any classes. You learn a lot just by going to class. And then the next day, on and on and on, until finally one day Rachel said, Mom, stop. I get it. I've heard all of these things before. I know all this. I'm going to be okay. Don't you love the confidence of a high school senior? I know all this. (laughs) 
Unlike my instructions, though, God's instructions are perfect and they are important and they show us more about who he is, what he can do, and what is important to him. So let's open up to chapter 30 and we're going to look at this first instruction. Verse 1. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So this first instruction is about keeping our word. Our words are important to God. Now, some commentaries define a vow as something that you will do for the Lord and an oath was something that you will not do. For example, I might vow to the Lord, I will read my Bible every day. And an oath I I take to not nag my husband. All right, so we're not going to be making that one. All right, so... The point here is they are both promises made voluntarily before the, God, before the Lord. And God says, keep your promises. Do what you say you're going to do. And whether you make this promise to God or to someone else, God hears and he knows. And so in essence, they are all made before the Lord. Keeping your word speaks of your character, your integrity. Are you honest and trustworthy? Do people know that you're someone that will do what you say you will do? You know, this is a big deal to God because God is trustworthy and God is faithful. And the Israelites, they were God's chosen people. They represented God. So the Israelites needed to be honest and trustworthy keeping their word. And today we need to um, keep our word as well as believers in Jesus, representing him. And it's so easy to break a promise today. Have you noticed that? Especially to children. I have two granddaughters that live in town and I pick them up from school um, a couple times a week. And so they might say to me, Grammy, can we get ice cream? And I say, well, we'll get ice cream tomorrow. And then the oldest one, Finley, will say, do you promise So now I think carefully about that, and and I say yes. And so the next day, when we get in the car, um, the little one, Harper, says, Grammy, we're going to get ice cream. You promised. You promised. They hold us to our promises. Our world today doesn't really seem to value honesty and integrity and truth very much. But God is reminding us in this chapter that our words are important Do not be deceivers, but speak the truth and let your actions back up these honest words. Now, the rest of this chapter deals with different situations where a single woman makes a vow or a married woman makes a vow and how the relationships play into that. But the purpose of this instruction is to safeguard vows from being made lightly or from regarding vows lightly. You know, in the New Testament time, the religious leaders had added so many ways to get out of their vows that they had completely lost the purpose of this instruction from God. And so Jesus clarifies in the Sermon on the Mount with um, this instruction from Matthew 5:37. Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. And then we read in Proverbs 20, 25, it says, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. We need to think carefully about our words. And I love the way Matthew Henry says, he says it like this, you shall not break your word, though you may change your mind. 
And I think that's so true. We might change our mind, but that doesn't change our vow. We must keep our promises. So to journey well with God, we need to be mindful of our words and keep our promises. Do not make or break a promise lightly. I want to remember this instruction from the Lord. So let's go on, and we're going to look at the next instruction. And it's a story, a a battle. It's really a holy war. And this story is about obeying God. So let's look at chapter 31. We're going to start with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. So God tells Moses this will be Moses' last battle before he dies. And this battle is to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. And this phrase is important because it tells us that this is a holy war. This is divine retribution. The time has come for God to punish the Midianites. Um, You remember that story, maybe. It's uh, chapter 25. Lynn told us this story when she was talking about the Balaam and Balak story, the talking donkey story. And she told us how the Israelites were camped out and the Midianite women enticed them into the camp and to um, have sexual relations with them. And then they took them to the sacrifices of their idols. And pretty soon the Israelites were bowing down and worshiping their idol god Baal. In fact, in verse 3 of that chapter 25, it tells us they yoked themselves with Baal. So God brings a plague on these Israelites, and now the time has come for Midian to be punished, to be destroyed. The Midianites, um, they were not innocent here. They had deliberately and craftily and gravely injured Israel without provocation. They had knowingly seduced Israel into idol worship, and they were striking at Israel's holy God. They did this on purpose. They weren't neutral. They were intentional in this. They had no regard for the holy, powerful, loving God of the nation of Israel. And not just Israel, but he is the true and living God for the whole universe. They didn't care. And down in verse 16, we're going to read that in a minute. It tells us that Balaam was the one who told them that the way to undermine God was to sexually entice the men and lead them in to idol worship. So let's go on to see what happens next. Verse 6. And Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings, and we see their names. And then it says they also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. So not every soldier went out to fight. Um, God said, just send a thousand from each tribe. And we also see that Phinehas, he's the son of Eleazar, the high priest, who became high priest um, after uh, Aaron had died. And Phinehas is bringing the holy vessels from the tabernacle and also the silver trumpets that we've talked a lot about. That um, So because of these things, we also know that it is a holy war. The Lord himself is leading them into battle. 
the five kings of Midian are killed and Balaam is killed. And then it says that the soldiers brought back the cattle and flocks and the women and children. And let's see how Moses responds to that. Verse 14, Moses was angry with the officers of the army. And look at verse 15. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. Moses is angry. These women are the very ones who had been involved in leading Israel away from God. And now you have kept them alive. And they can go and come into our camp and once again lead you to worship their idol gods. So Moses says, kill these married women and all the boys. But God's mercy let the little girls live and they could be assimilated into and grow up in the tribes of the Israelites. In the midst of this um, harsh punishment, we also see God's goodness. Because in spite of the soldiers' incomplete obedience, God gives them a great victory. It was quick, it was overwhelming, and not one Israelite soldier was killed, according to verse 49. Now this story seems harsh. It's hard to read, and maybe it's hard um, to understand. So I want to talk a minute about it, because it is important that we think correctly about God. In fact, A.W. Tozier, in his book, um, Knowledge of the Holy One, says, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. We move towards our mental image of God. So we want to think correctly about God. Ladies, don't misunderstand the heart of God. So first of all, God does not glorify war. The warriors uh, were not a privileged class in Israel like they were in the other nations surrounding them. God does not glorify war. God wants peace. God is holy and he is just and he will punish evil and wickedness in his time. Now the Midianites were evil and they were wicked not just because what they did but because they did not want to follow God. They didn't want to believe in God. In fact, they had contempt for God, and they tried to strike against God and his, his people. At any time, these foreign people could have chosen to believe in God, to follow him, to obey him, and he would have blessed them. When Balak and, and Balaam were standing on top of that mountain, and they looked down, and they saw the Israel tribes, and they saw how beautiful it was. It, it was like a river going through a green garden. They could have believed God then and gone and bowed down before him and worshipped God, and he would have blessed them. God wanted his relationship with the Israelites to be a picture of God's care and provision and protection and blessing. His laws were good. And for the Israelites' benefit, he wanted other nations and people to see God's love and turn to him and obey him. And in fact, that is what Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 4. He, Moses says to the Israelites, But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? God wanted his relationship to draw other nations to him so that they might be in relationship with him. But these people from Midian chose not to do that. And unfortunately, the Israelites were not always a great example of worshiping and following God. Uh, Instead, they were quick to grumble and disobey and to run to idols. But these people... From these people, through these people, God would bring the Savior of the world, Jesus. This was God's plan from the very beginning of time. We see it in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 12. When he says to Abraham, one of your descendants will be the one that brings blessing to all people. So even in their disobedience, God's plan goes forward. And now with Jesus, everything is different Jesus shed blood on the cross. His death on the cross makes it possible to have a relationship with a holy God. Jesus is our perfect once and for all sin sacrifice. And now there are no holy wars. Today our battles are spiritual battles. Paul tells us that in his letter to the Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ours are spiritual battles. Today, we are to be an example of the love of Jesus saved by grace so that others may see this and come to believe in Jesus. Jesus tells us to love one another, uh, to love our enemies, to do good, and to stand firm in the truth. And the truth is God's word. Obey God's word. There's one more instruction on obedience, and it is in chapter 33. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit, so turn over to there, verse 50. And as we read this, you can um, see why God would feel like he would need to uh, give this instruction again to the Israelites. So verse 50 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land for you to possess it. Look down at 55, he says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. So God says, drive out the Canaanites when you go into the land, destroy the idols, and destroy those high places, those places where they um, built altars and they sacrificed and they worshipped their idol gods. Destroy all that. And if you don't, they are going to make your life miserable. And even worse, they are going to lead you astray again. They are going to lead you away from me, your loving Father God. So drive them out. Unfortunately, we're going to see in the book of Joshua and Judges that the Israelites don't obey completely, and this very thing happens. They are oppressed by these people. So obey me is God's cry. What's the application for us to journey well with God? Takes faith and obedience. 
faith in God, believing God, who he is and what he's done. And obedience, obey him. We read and study God's word to know what it is that we should obey. And one great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. So with faith and obedience, let's journey well with God. Let's go on, and now we're going to um, see the instructions God gives on remembering God. And we see that. Just go back up in chapter 33 to verse 1, and let's look at that. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. So God tells Moses, keep a journal of the journey. So Moses records the campsites from Egypt to the plains of Moab. And we're going to just kind of skip through here and look at a couple verses and see what they might be remembering. Verse 3 says they set out uh, from Ramses. And if you look down on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of the Egyptians. Now this takes us all the way back to Exodus 12 when they left Egypt um, from the city of Ramses after that tenth and final plague. And I love this descriptive word. They went out triumphantly. Some of your translations may say boldly. And with this um, they would be reminded of the Lord was the one who took them out of Egypt and out of slavery. Let's go on and look at verse 8. And right in the middle there, we see this. They passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. Now, this is talking about the Red Sea. And you remember the Israelites, they came out and they were up against the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army was following behind them. And they were kind of trapped. And then God, with his miraculous power, parted the water of the Red Sea. And they walked through on dry land. With this, they would remember God's miraculous power for them let's go on and look at verse 15 turn over to that and we see these words they camped in the wilderness of Sinai now we're at Mount Sinai and this is where God gave them the law and where they built the tabernacle God's home on earth and so they would remember God's goodness and God's holiness verse 16 says they were camped in Kabroth Hatava. Now, that is the place where they grumbled about food, and so God sent quail, and some um, were so greedy that they died of gluttony. And then in verse 36, look down to that. It says they were camped in the wilderness of Zin. That is Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. That is um, the place where Moses sent the 12 spies into the promised land. Two came back with a good report, uh, Caleb and Joshua. They said, the land's beautiful and we can take it with God um, with us. But the other ten were fearful and so the Israelites rebelled against God and they refused to go into the promised land. Then between verses uh, 36 and 37, we have the 38 years of wandering and Moses is silent on that. Verse 38 tells us um, about the death of Aaron. Uh, it says that it happened, if you look in the middle there, at the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old, so Moses would have been 120. And then verse 48 
They are camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan River at Jericho. They are almost home. This list of places and events is a reminder of God's power and God's provision and God's promise. It's a reminder of the blessings of God as they obeyed and followed him. And it's a reminder of the times they disobeyed God and he overruled. His purpose would be accomplished. It's a record of God's sovereignty in dealing with the uh, Israelites, his people. And it's a record of his providence. Providence is God bringing his will to pass so that all of life lies under his plan and control. Providence is bringing his will to pass. And so on our journey, remembering God's providence in our own lives strengthens our faith. And it leads us to gratitude. It leads us to praise. How do you remember God's grace and goodness in your lives? Maybe you keep a journal. Or maybe you want to start keeping a journal. Um, maybe you have a diary uh, that you write down the ways that God answered prayers, the lessons that he has taught you, the ways that he has blessed you. You know, the holidays um, are coming up. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Maybe between now and then, every day, you could write on a slip of paper a blessing, a way that God has blessed you. And put those papers in a basket and during one of the holidays, have your family or your friends or your children or grandchildren draw out the slips of paper and read them um, and be reminded of how God's blessed you. And then they might think of ways that God's showed his goodness in their lives and be able to praise and thank God for his goodness. Maybe you want to uh, take a stone and write a word on it with a marker that reminds you of God's goodness, such as healing or work, or love, or maybe a name of someone, and then put it in your garden to remember. Okay, so you might not see it until spring, but spring is coming. And so then you can look at that stone and remember God's goodness. So let's go on and look at some practical instructions that we have here on how to divide up the promised land. And we're going to look at a couple of chapters, but first let's turn to chapter 32, verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Hazar and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. And then let me just summarize the, um, some of what's happening here. So the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and we also know from later on in the passage that half the tribe of Manasseh come to Moses and they say, can we settle here east of the Jordan in the land that they had just conquered from Sion, king of the Amorites, and Bashan, king of Og. Now you might remember those guys. We studied this back in chapter 21. Um, and Amy told us that this land was fertile and lush and had a great place for livestock, which we've just read. These tribes have a great deal of it. And I have a map. Um, if you want to put that up, this is the map that Amy showed us. And you see on that east side of the Jordan River, the land where they wanted to um, have as their inheritance. So what was Moses's response? Let's look at verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? 
Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskol and saw the land, they discouraged the hearts of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. So Moses is upset, and we um, get it. He's thinking, hey, it's happening again. Here we are, right up next to the promised land, ready to go in. And these guys are coming to me and saying, hey, can we settle here? You know, we don't want to go into the promised land. Um, Don't make us... They're going to discourage the other Israelites, and pretty soon no one wants to go into the promised land. And Moses is thinking, what will God do now? But if we read on, we see that these tribes say, oh no, they assure Moses that they will go in and fight with the Israelites. They say, first let us set up our homes and some barns for our um, flocks, and then we will go in and we will fight for the Israelites and drive out the Canaanites. And so let's see how Moses responds now. Verse 20. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But... You know, I like that but kind of reminds you when um, the dad, when he asks for the car and he says, okay, you can take the car. But if you're not home by midnight, if you're not, you know, what else? Here's Moses. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what you have promised. Kind of a throwback to that first instruction we had in verse 30. Do what you say you're going to do. And if you don't, you have sinned against the Lord. This isn't just about helping your Israelite brothers and sisters. You have made a promise to the Lord. So the leaders of Reuben and Gad and that half-tribe of Manasseh say, We will do it. We will do what we say. And then if we drop down to verse 28, we see that Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. So why is he telling these men? These men would be the leaders when they go into the promised land. Moses is going to be gone. And so it would be these men that would remind um, these tribes, if necessary, to keep their commitment. They were the ones that would hold Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh accountable. Now, it's a good thing to have someone to hold us accountable. We don't always think so. Um, Sometimes it kind of seems um, awkward or, or hard or we're a little bit afraid of what might happen. But it's really a good thing to have someone hold you accountable. Maybe a close friend who walks with the Lord or someone in your small group or a mentor. You know, someone who loves you and cares about you and can remind you of your commitments before God. God. Someone to hold you accountable, to encourage you and give you wisdom as you journey with the Lord. It's a good thing to have someone to hold us accountable. So let's go on and look in chapter 34, and we're going to see two more instructions about dividing up the promised land. So turn over to 34, and let's look at verse 1. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. And then God goes on to give them specific boundaries for the land of Canaan. And he starts out in verse um, 3 with the southern border. And we have a map we can put up there, um, similar to the others. Now, this shows where the nine and a half tribes will be divided up. We don't know that until the book of Joshua. But I wanted you just to see this map. Down south, we see by Kadesh, there's the southern border. And then um, verse 6 takes us up um, the western edge is the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. And then they come up north in verse 7, says Mount Hor. Now, we're not sure where that is. It's not the one that's down south where Aaron went um, up to to die. Um, this is up north. And some think it's Mount Hermon, which is north of that little circle there. That's the Sea of Galilee, up north of that. And then in verse 10, we have the east, and you see it going down the eastern side. And in verse 12, we read these words. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. This shall be your land. And so with these words, first in verse 2, when you enter the land, and then in verse 12, this shall be your land, what hope this must have given the Israelites. What joy and excitement must have filled their hearts as they're thinking, we are going to inherit this very real promised land. And then Moses goes on to tell them in verse 13 that God has said that they will inherit the land by drawing lots. And he then goes on to um, tell them who will be in charge of this division of the land by lots. And we see that in verse um, 17. These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. And these are the names of the men. Now we don't know those names except for that first one there. Did you see it? From the tribe of Judah, Caleb. I love that. Caleb. It was Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that came back with their faith in God and giving a good report. And God had said they would go into the promised land. And we see God blessing Caleb. He's going into the promised land and he's going in as the leader of the tribe of Judah. We can also see God's great wisdom in choosing these men, one from each tribe, um, along with their new civil leader, Joshua, and their spiritual leader, the new high priest, Eleazar. And this would be a good plan so that there would be no disputes as they divide up the land. And then we're going to go on to chapter uh, 35, and we're going to look at one last um, instruction on dividing up the land, and this concerns the Levites. God's special tribe. We've talked a lot about the Levites in Numbers. Way back in chapter 3, God said, the Levites shall be mine. And then on your verse sheet, I've got Numbers 18.20. This is where God tells the Levites, I am, your, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The Levites were not going to have um, any inheritance of the land because God was their inheritance. And he was taking care of them um, through the tithes that the uh, Israelites would bring to God. But the Levites would need a place to live. And so God makes provision for them as well. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 35. 
The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possessions as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. Drop down to verse 7. It says, All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. So the Levites would have 48 cities, and they would be spread out uh, um, over all the land. These other verses in here tell us that there would be more cities um, in the larger tribes that would have more land, and fewer cities in those tribes that were smaller and had less land. And they were going to be on both sides of the Jordan River, so that every tribe would have some Levitical towns in their area. In fact, I read that most Israelites lived within 10 miles of a Levitical town. And this was a good plan because it was the Levites that were responsible to teach the Israelites the law. And it was the Levites that would encourage the Israelites to obey the law. And if there were disputes, the Levites would help settle them according to the law. So God provides for the Levites here and he also provides for all the Israelites as well. What an exciting time for the Israelites as they hear these specific details about the promised land. It filled their hearts with hope. They're going to inherit the land that God had promised them. And we too can believe God because we have an inheritance as well. One day we are going to be with God in glory. We are going on to glory as God has promised. So as we journey with God, we have hope because we know that God will keep his promises. And now we come to the last chapter in Numbers, chapter 36. And I have to tell you that the first few times I read this, I thought, whoa, you know, God, I, you know, I kind of said to God, what's with this chapter? Kind of this random story about these, dark this is the way you're going to end your great book. And so can you believe I said that to God? So... Anyway, I read it a few more times, and finally, a couple months ago, as I was reading, preparing for this lesson, I read it, and I saw that this was an excellent way for God to end this book of Numbers, because it is an, a final illustration of faith and obedience. So Numbers ends on a high note. We get to see these Israelites with a final um, time of Faith and obedience. You know, the Israelites have had many ups and downs, many times that they have lacked faith in God, they've grumbled, they've rebelled, but God in his mercy and grace has continued to instruct them and love them and care for them. And so now we get to see the book of Numbers close with this story of faith and obedience. Brings me great joy to see this. You know, this is a true story about the daughters of Zelophehad. We met them last week in chapter 27. They were five sisters. Um, they had no brothers. Their father had died. And so they go to Moses and say, why should our father's name be forgotten? Let us have the portion of his inherited land. Uh, they were from the tribe of Manasseh. And God said, they're right. Let them have their father's inheritance. And so now in chapter 36, we see some family heads from the tribe of Manasseh coming to Moses with a concern. They understand God's command for the daughter's inheritance. So that's, that's not their problem. Um, their problem is, what if these daughters would marry men from other tribes? Then these other tribes would have this land. It would go to their tribe. 
So we know that Moses goes to God because in verse 5 we read, And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. The land is important. It's so important. It's their inheritance from the Lord. And so he tells them that they must marry within their tribe. So how do the daughters respond, we see in verse 10? Well, they grumble and complain, and they say, hey, don't tell us what to do. This is our land. We're going to marry who? No, no, they don't say that. This is the great part. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. They obeyed God. They obeyed him. And in verse 12, we read, they were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh. They had faith in God. They saw God's goodness in this inheritance of the land, and they obeyed God. And it really gives us a positive example of how to journey with the Lord. Remember God's words. The, the leaders remembered what God had said. And then go to God with all of our questions and confusions and doubts or concerns. Take it to the Lord. If you are still not sure about who God is in this book of Numbers and you have some concern, go to God and ask him to reveal himself to you, to clarify your thoughts about that. Take your concerns to the Lord. And then look for God's goodness, his hand of goodness. Um, and then obey God. What a great example this last chapter gives us. And then in verse 13 we read, these are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They're almost home. Almost home. It's been a long journey. It's been a very long journey. But overall, I see God's grace. God's grace stands out. I read this story about a little boy. His mother had died, and he was very young, and he didn't understand it. And he asked his dad question after question. Where's my mom, and why can't she come back, and what's going on? And so as the day ended, and it was um, night, and the little boy was in bed, the dad came and laid down with him in the darkness. And the little boy said, Daddy, are you facing me? Are, are, is your face turned towards me? And the dad said, yes, I'm looking at you. And the little boy said, good, I can sleep now. I think that we all want our Heavenly Father's face turned towards us, looking at us. And as I look back over numbers, God's face was always turned towards Israel. He was looking at Israel. In fact, it was the blessing that God tells Aaron to speak over his people way back in number 6, verse 24. And so I want to close today with this blessing for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessings on your journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious and merciful and good God. 
you're holy and you're just. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for these words and numbers to encourage us and to draw us closer to you as we walk with you day by day. Father, thank you for these women. I just ask great blessings upon them throughout these next weeks, the holidays. And Lord, bring us back in January to study more of your word. You are a good, good father. Thank you for your blessings. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.